All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, good evening. Uh, the Judgment's Revival Connection. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 18. And I will confess something. Speakers do make confessions sometimes. <laughs> I confess that this is the first time I've ever spoken exactly on this subject. So I would appreciate prayers. We need to pray. Of course, we're going to pray, but pray for me. I believe that the Lord helped me put these thoughts together. I've never really done this quite like this, but there's a lot of information I'm going to be sharing. And before we pray, I want to read the quotation from the book, The Great Controversy, that I've been reading for the last couple of meetings. This is the book, Great Controversy, page 464. Hopefully, we've got this memorized by now. We're told that before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. The Spirit and the power of God will be poured out upon His children. And that statement makes perfect sense because if you think about it, when Christianity started, it started with a big bang, didn't it? The day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down, uh, the disciples were given special power, they went out and preached the gospel uh, all over the Roman world, and doesn't it make sense that before Jesus comes back again, that the Lord wants a similar revival to take place among His people? Uh, back in the first century, they preached about the cross, about Jesus' uh, love, His suffering, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, and now we're getting close to the time when He's going to come back again. So this is a time for revival as well, and we're told that there's going to be a big revival among God's people before His judgments really start falling heavily upon the world. So that's what we're going to talk about this evening. So let's pray Let's uh, ask the Lord Jesus to help us. We need the Holy Spirit. We need his, his presence. We need His blessing. I need it. You need it. We all need it. So let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to be here uh, in the country at Eden Valley. Today was such a beautiful day, such a gorgeous day that came from your gracious hand. And this evening, the closing meeting of the day, we pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we can't have a revival uh, without your Holy Spirit. It's not possible. And it really just doesn't do any good just to talk about it, just to go through uh, ideas or verses. We need more than just talking about it. We really need to be part of it. We want this revival to happen. We want it to happen inside of us. Lord, I need, I need more of your presence, much, much more. And so we all pray together, please send the Holy Spirit to each one of us. As we, as we go into this topic, Lord, please convict us where we need convicting. Speak to our consciences, speak to, to mine, and use me as a channel for your voice and for your Holy Spirit and for your blessing. 
Please, Lord, and we pray this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. The Judgment's Revival Connection. Revelation chapter 18 is a chapter that deals with both revival and judgment. It's very clear when you read the chapter. And we're going to take a look at this chapter. We're going to go through a number of verses at the beginning, especially. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but there's an awful lot in this chapter. And it starts out in verse 1 with a very powerful passage, 18.1. The Bible says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. I've got, I'm reading from the New King James Bible. I believe the King James says, having great power. Isn't that right? Great power. And the earth was illuminated or lightened with his glory, the glory of God, the glory of Jesus Christ. This is a mighty text. Now, when the Bible talks about an angel, the uh, Greek word for, for angel is angelos, which literally means messenger. And this angel, these are uh, symbols in the book of Revelation, and this angel represents a movement of God a movement of the Holy Spirit, a movement of light, a movement of power into the world before Jesus returns. Uh, It represents a, a movement of God to his people and then through his people to the rest of the world. That as you read the chapter, it's very clear the world is in deep, deep darkness. The Bible says that this angel has great authority or great power. In other words, uh, when it comes to this angel, there is no if, ands, or buts. The, the message of the angel, the authority of the angel, the power of the angel is very real, very definite, and very clear. Very clear. And it says that the whole earth is illuminated or lightened with the glory, the glory of God. And I believe that light is going to go to the farthest parts of the earth. And it's thrilling to hear about... Uh, the missionary projects that this church is involved in, that this ministry is involved in. God wants to shed his light to the darkest places of this world. As I look at this verse, and as Seventh-day Adventists have looked at this verse for a long time, we see revival in this verse among God's people, comparable to what we've just read right there. Such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. And it's my conviction that those who are revived by the message and by the angel and by the Lord and by the Holy Spirit, they then become channels to give this message to, especially to Babylon. When you read verse 2 down through the rest of the chapter, it's very clear that the revival moves into the preaching of a message that has to do with judgments that are coming upon Babylon. That's what the chapter is all about. Babylon is a woman. She's described in Revelation 17. She's sitting upon a seven-headed, ten-horned beast. She has, very, she has various characteristics, and she represents uh, false religion, 
especially the mother and the daughters that influenced the world. And Revelation 18, verse 2, says that the angel cries with what kind of a voice? With a loud voice or a mighty voice. So again, this is not a, an if, ands, or buts. You know, it's not, well, it could be this or it could be that. It might be this or it might be that. Uh, this is a message that's very, very clear and very powerful and very straightforward. And the angel cries mightily with a loud voice. And he says, and here's part of the verse on the screen, he says, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Now, I just want to share some insights as I've been looking at this and pondering this and reading my Bible. Uh, It seems to me that for a people to go out and to say with a loud, bold voice that Babylon has fallen, it seems to me that they are aware of the fact that uh, Paul says in the book of Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we all have made mistakes, we've all committed sins, we've all in one way or another fallen, as Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need Jesus Christ. And so for a people to say that Babylon has fallen, uh, the impression comes to me that these are going to be people who know what it's like to be fallen human beings, but know what it's like to be redeemed and rescued and saved through the grace of Jesus. They know that. They know what it's like. Now, as you keep reading the text, it says, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become, and what has she become? A dwelling place of demons or devils. Uh, Babylon becomes a very, very dark place. And it sure seems to me, and at least for myself, I look back at my past, uh, I have done, maybe I shouldn't use the word done, but I've had a lot of battles within my head and within my heart with with Satan and his angels. I'm very aware of that. Uh, There was a time in my life when there there were definitely demonic influences working in me. And it sure seems to me that those who give this message are people who are aware of the fact that they've also battled with the devil. They have many times become dwelling places of demons, but by the grace of God, by the power of Jesus, they've been delivered. And they know what that's like. They know what that's that's like as they give this message. As you keep reading, it goes on and says, Babylon has become a dwelling place of demons a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hateful bird. And the word foul just comes, comes up to me and uh, the word unclean. And as I look back on my life, uh, there were times when foul words came out of my mouth, but no more. There were times when I was uh, deep involved in things that were unclean. I didn't grow up a Christian, didn't grow up a Seventh-day Adventist, grew up in North Hollywood And as most people do who grow up in the world or even in the church, many times, you know, there are times when people yield to temptation, times when they fall, times when the devil takes over. And these people who are giving this message are people that know what that's like, but who have been cleansed through the blood of Jesus. They've been revived. They've been cleansed. They now have light. They now have power. And they're no longer participating 
with demons. They're not involved with foul spirits. They're not uh, involved with the unclean things of the world. These people have been revived. They've been changed. They've been cleansed. Or how else can they give this kind of a message? See what I mean? They can't give a message like this unless they've, they've truly, been, truly been revived. Verse 3 says that all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Wine in the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, has to do with doctrines, the false doctrines of Babylon. Babylon is full of false teachings. And it sure seems to me that in order for us to get to the point where we can say these kind of words, we have to be a people that have been purified from every form of false doctrine. We have to be a people that speak the truth, that tell the truth based on the Bible. Our doctrines must be clean. They must be true. They must be purified based on the word of God. Or how else can we give this message? All the nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication, her involvement with uh, the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And then verse 4, it's a very significant verse. Verse 4 says, I heard another voice. It's part of the message, but it's a... It's a specific, detailed part of the message. Another voice is heard from where? From heaven. That's right. It's a heavenly voice, and it says, Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. And as I've looked at this verse, it impresses me that in spite of Babylon's problems, and she has many problems, God still has a people inside Babylon. And he calls them his own people. These are the people of Jesus. They're the right people, but they're in the wrong place. And there's a lot of them out there, a lot of them. And it sure seems to me that if we are going to be part of a voice that comes from heaven, then we have to be heavenly people. And if we're going to call people to come out of Babylon, out of these things, false doctrines, demonic indwelling, uh, unclean spirits, foul spirits, all of these kind of things, if we're going to be calling people out, then where do we have to be? That's right, we have to be out. If we're not out, yeah, if we're not out all the way, then how can we call people to come out? So the people that give this message are a revived people. They're a cleansed people. They're a redeemed people. They're a rescued people. They know what it's like through personal experience to uh, be able to identify with many of the things that are in Babylon, but they're not doing those things anymore. They don't do them. They're out, and they're calling people to come out. So they've got to be separate. Does that make sense? We've got to be separate, or how can we call people out? If we, call, if we try to call people out and they say, well, you're not out, how can you call me out when you're not out? So we've got to be out. We can't be doing these things. Now, go back to the text. 
And look at the text. Verse 4, I want to really zero in on this. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her what? In her sins. Right. The word sins comes up. It surfaces in Revelation 18. Babylon is involved with sins. And God's people tell his people who are in Babylon, you've got to come out because if you don't come out, you're going to be participating. You're going to be sharing. You're going to be partaking of the same sins of Babylon. And God is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Now, the word sin, and I'm going to push my button here and show a picture, which, okay, here's the woman. There's the Babylonian woman who has a lot of sins, right? And here's another picture of the Ten Commandments. Now, most of us have studied our Bibles carefully enough that we know what is the biblical Old Testament and New Testament definition of sin. And let me just, I'll, I'll let you tell me. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says what? That's right. Sin is the transgression of the law. Babylon is very, very weak on knowing what sin is all about. She has wine. She has her false teachings. She doesn't really know what sin is all about. She neglects and ignores and rejects the law of God. 1 John 3, 4 says sin is the transgression of the law. Romans 3, 20 says by the law is the knowledge of sin. Uh, Romans 7, verse 7, Paul says, I wouldn't have known sin except for the law because the law said do not covet. Uh, James chapter 2, verses 8 to 12 is very clear that people who, committed, who maybe don't commit adultery, but if they murder or if they... Don't, if they don't murder, but if they commit adultery, if they're breaking the commandments, uh, James says, you have become a transgressor of the law. So there's text after text after text in the New Testament showing us that the biblical New Testament definition of sin is breaking God's commandments. And that's what Babylon is doing. Babylon is full of sin, which has to do with the violation of God's law. And God calls his people to come out, and if they don't come out, they're going to be sharing and participating in the same sins of Babylon. Now, here is a, here's another picture, and that is a picture of the cross. The reason why Jesus died, according to the New Testament, is because uh, 1 Corinthians 15.3 says Christ died for our what? Our sins, right, according to the scriptures. And most, most Christians know that. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But a lot of times from that point it gets kind of blurry and hazy. When if, you, if you ask somebody uh, what is sin, many times they'll say sin is missing the mark. And that is true in a sense, but then my question is, well, what mark? What mark are we missing? And if you stick to the text, stick to the Bible, stick to the Word, the New Testament is very clear that sin is breaking the law, and that's why Jesus died. Jesus died because we broke the Ten Commandments, the holy law of God. 
That's why Jesus sacrificed his life in Gethsemane and on the cross. Now, earlier I put on the screen a quotation from the book, The Great Controversy. This is a powerful book. And that quote actually was taken from a chapter, and the chapter is called Modern Revivals. And this chapter, Modern Revivals, is just based totally on the Bible, text after text after text. And it talks about true revivals, where the Word of God is preached, and false revivals that are often current in the religious world. And the same chapter that talks about the judgments and the revival that's going to take place among God's people, that same chapter also has this to say. Now, take a close look at this, uh, this quotation here. It says, the danger, it talks about how in many churches there is danger of underestimating the justice of God. The tendency of the modern pulpit is to strain out the divine justice from the divine benevolence, from the habit of underrating the divine law and justice, men easily slide into the habit of underestimating the grace which has provided an atonement for sin. Thus, the gospel loses its value and its importance in the minds of men. And what this is basically saying is that the law and the gospel need to come together. They're inseparable. They're like two sides of the same coin. The reason why Jesus died on the cross is because the law was broken. In order for God to extend mercy to sinners, justice must be satisfied. As we talked about uh, last night, God's character is a blend of mercy and justice rooted in love. And God wants to save sinners who have broken his law, but he can't just overlook sin, can he? He can't just look the other way and say, well, that's okay. Uh, don't worry about it. Just come on into the kingdom. God doesn't do that. He cannot do that. His principles can't allow that. And so because he loves sinners and yet he has a law and he has justice in his character, the, the, uh, what I call the divine dilemma is how do you save a sinner and bring him into the kingdom and not ignore your justice? How do you do that? How do you solve that, that uh, dilemma? Well, the amazing truth is that God has come up with a perfect plan to do that. It's a perfect plan. And the plan is, the plan was, that the Son of God, who was equal with the Father, would come down to earth, be born as a human being in Bethlehem, live a holy life in harmony with the law, keeping the commandments perfectly, and then at the end of his life, in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, he would gather to himself, into his mind, into his heart, all the sins of the whole world, from Adam to the last man, woman, or child. Gather them all into his mind and into his heart, and he would experience the fullness and the, uh, the ugliness and the incredible, incomprehensible wickedness of evil and sin, and he would pay the price. He would pay the price 
he would uh, experience divine justice himself. Divine justice against all sin. Just like Isaiah 53 says, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, I've thought about this many times, that the finger that wrote the law on stone, commandment by commandment by commandment, that finger was on a hand that later on came down to the earth and was stretched out upon a cross and died. The finger that wrote the law was on the hand that was nailed to the cross. It's the same, it's the same finger. It's the same hand. And if you study the New Testament, we discover that very clearly. The Old Testament says, uh, well, Paul says in Hebrews, not Hebrews, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, that the rock that followed the Israelites in the wilderness, that rock was Christ. Jesus said to the Jewish people, he said, before Abraham was born, I am. And then they tried to kill him because they knew what he meant. Because God told Moses before he wrote the law with his finger on stone, I am who I am. And Jesus said, he said, before Abraham was born, I am. So it's, uh, it's Jesus in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus is our creator. Jesus is God. And the one who gave his life on the cross is more than a man. He's God himself in human form, paying the full price, the full price for the violations of the law of God to satisfy, to completely satisfy God's justice, the divine justice, so that he can give us his mercy and his grace. And if we neglect the law, and if we say there is no law in all of this, if we underestimate the justice of God, and if we get rid of the divine law, then, brothers and sisters, we are completely unable to understand the cross. The cross is meaningless. We have no idea why Jesus died. But now we know. We know. And back to the text in Revelation 18, 4, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. Babylon is loaded and permeated with breaking the law of God. And God is calling his people to come out lest they share in her sins. Now notice when you look at the text, if, if people continue to participate and to share in the sins of breaking the law of God, what will eventually happen to them? It says, lest you share in her sin, if you share in her sins, what will you also share in? That's right. Look at that right there in the Bible. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. And those plagues especially are in Revelation chapter 16. Those are the seven last plagues that come upon a world that has broken God's law, rejected its creator, and received the mark of the beast. And so God is warning and urging and pleading with people to come out of Babylon 
so that the judgments that are coming don't fall on them. Does that make sense? That's what the text is saying. Now, verse 5 continues and says, For her sins, the sins of Babylon, have reached to heaven. Babylon has a lot of sins. Her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. I look at that text, God has remembered her iniquities. And that tells me that God will never have a memory loss when it comes to sin. God remembers the sins of Babylon. He remembers her iniquities. Nothing escapes the awareness and the memory of God. Nothing. There's no violation of his law that he's not aware of. He's aware of them all. God has remembered her iniquities. Verse 6 says, render to her just as she rendered to you. So there's an element of justice in this. Because of what Babylon has done, it's going to come back to her. Render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. In the measure that she has glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. Now, in order for people to quote these texts and to give this message, especially when it says there that Babylon has glorified herself, that impresses me that God needs to have a people who have learned by experience the deadly nature of self-exaltation. How can we tell Babylon, you have glorified yourself, if that's what we're doing? See what I mean? We've got to be out. We've got to not have demons dwelling in us. We can't have a foul spirit. We can't be dabbling in things that are unclean. We can't be participating in her sins of violating the law of God. And we cannot be glorifying ourselves. Who are we here to glorify? The Lord. That's right. Glorify God. That's what the first angel says. Fear God and give him glory. And we need to learn this by experience. Verse 7 says, she says in her heart, and, and what she, she doesn't say it out loud, but she says it in her heart. She says, I sit as a queen, and I am no widow, and I will see no sorrow. Sounds a little bit like another message that Jesus gave to one of the seven churches. Remember that one? The, uh, the seventh church, which is what? The Laodicean, the Laodicean church. And what does Laodicea say? I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Uh, tomorrow morning, I don't know if it's been announced or not, but, but my uh, talk tomorrow morning at what time? Uh, I heard someone say nine. Lisa, you got to get on them to write it down. You did, didn't you? No, it's at 8.30, not nine. Tomorrow at 8.30, uh, my talk is going to be called New Light for Laodiceans. So we're going to take a look at the Laodicean message very carefully and then just look at what the Bible actually says and draw some lessons. But anyway, we can't, 
Laodicea says in, in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, she says she's rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing. It's, it's, it's very similar to what Babylon says. When Babylon says, I sit as a queen, I'm no widow, and I will see no sorrow. And God wants us to get the victory over that spirit. What do you say? We cannot afford to have that spirit in us at all. It's got to go. It's got to go. Verse 8 says, Therefore, her plagues will come in one day. And this is talking about Babylon. What's going to happen to Babylon? Her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who what? Who judges her. That's right. Strong is the Lord God who judges her. Now, some people don't like the whole idea of God being a judge, of God judging people, of God sending judgments. But brothers and sisters, it's as biblical as the Bible. It's as biblical as the Bible, and the text is very clear. And again, we're, we're talking about the context of revival in verse 1, and then the message of judgment in verses 2 onward through the rest of the chapter. Strong is the Lord God who judges her. Babylon is going down. And God doesn't want us to go down with it. He doesn't want his people to go down with Babylon. So he wants us to be out, and he wants to revive us. So we understand these principles, these basic, solid, New Testament, biblical principles, so we can then give the message with a clear voice and be out of Babylon ourselves, not participating or sharing in her sins at all. Here's the law, here's the gospel. The law and the gospel go together. If we preach the law without the gospel, then all we do is discourage people. But if we preach the gospel without the law, then people don't know why Jesus died. It's simple. I'll say that again. If we preach the law without the gospel, all we do is doom and damn people and discourage them. But if we preach the gospel without the law, then we have no clue how costly sin really is and why Jesus Christ died. The law and the gospel go together. And they go together in the sanctuary service, don't, don't they? That's why an Israelite sinner took a lamb and pointed its head toward the most holy place where the ark was, underneath the mercy seat where the law was. And then he put his hand on its head and confessed over the lamb, the innocent lamb, the sins that he had committed where he had broken the law. And then the priest handed him a knife, and he took the knife and slit the throat of the animal. And the animal died instead of the person for breaking the law of God. And then on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the blood, take it into the most holy place in the very presence of God, and he would sprinkle that blood seven times on top of a golden lid, which was, what was that called again? The mercy seat. 
So there's blood on the mercy seat underneath which is the Ten Commandments. And in that most holy place, Day of Atonement, sanctuary scene, we have a perfect revelation of God's justice, of his law, of his principles, and of the gospel, and the mercy seat where Jesus shed his blood so we could be completely forgiven and cleansed. That's what the Day of Atonement was all about. Now, let me share with you, uh, well, here's a, here's a simple way to say it. This may be, uh, I don't know if this is the best way to say it or not, but it's very simple. To illustrate the relationship between the law and the gospel, uh, it's a little bit like considering the law as a mirror that shows us our sins, and the gospel is like the soap. When you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror, you know, you don't always like what you see, right? Especially as you get older, you don't like what you see. And especially if you're dirty, you don't like what you see. If you've been working outside, you know, for a hard day. Uh, and so what do you do? You, you know, you get in the shower and you clean up. You clean, you clean your body if you're dirty. The law is like a mirror that shows us what's going on. And Jesus has offered by his grace to cleanse us. He's like the soap. He's the cleansing agent. It's simple to think of it that way. And the Bible tells us that the law is a mirror. And the Bible tells us that Jesus can wash us clean by his blood. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says, To him who loves us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. Now, here's a few simple facts. I've got seven facts here about the law of God. Number one, Lucifer, Lucifer's rebellion was rebellion against the law of God. You can read that clearly in Patriarchs and Prophets, the chapter on the origin of evil. Lucifer first rebelled against God's law, even though it was, wasn't written down in the form of the Ten Commandments. It was still uh, very much there in principle. The law of God is a transcript of God's character of love. His commandments are good. We sang, uh, where's the brother that sang that song? The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. God's law is right. God's law is a transcript of his character of love. It is based on the eternal principles of love. That's point number three. Point number four is the well-being of the entire universe is connected to God's maintaining of those principles. The principles of love, the principles of loyalty to the creator of heaven and earth, these principles must be maintained. Now, point number five, this is a very important point. Yes, God is very, very patient with the sinful world. He's been patient for a long, long time. But, and don't miss this, God, and you tell me if this is right or not, God has zero, zero tolerance for sin. Zero. How do you say uh, zero in Spanish? How do you say it? Okay, uh, I'll t I won't repeat that. Uh, I can't quite get it exactly, but you got it. Now, nah. God has no tolerance for evil whatsoever. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 2. 
Hebrews chapter 2. Now, he may be patient, and he may not... He may not deal with sin right away, but he's going to deal with it. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says, uh, though sentence is not executed speedily against evil, it's because of that that the sons, the hearts of the sons of men are fully set in them to do evil. Sentence is not executed speedily. God, God is patient. God is kind. God is uh, merciful. But eventually, justice is going to come. Now, look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. If the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every, and what's that next word? Every transgression. How many transgressions? Every single one. Every transgression and disobedience received, and what will it finally receive? A just reward. That's right. There is absolutely no violation of God's law that God will overlook. Not one. He has zero tolerance for evil and for sin when it comes to his eternal principles. Every transgression and disobedience will receive received a just reward. And then verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation. And there it is right there. Uh, point number six is that every single sin is eventually going to be punished. Eventually, that's what's going to happen. There's no sin that that's, he's going to forget, no sin that he's not going to remember. Uh, every single sin will eventually be punished. And point number seven is the good news of the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus took every sin, every violation. He took the full just punishment on the cross so that we could legally and justly be forgiven and let off the hook. That's where mercy and justice meet at the cross. Isn't that powerful? And it's biblical. It says, it is, it's as biblical as the Bible. Now, let me show you another quotation here on the screen from the book Patriarchs and Prophets. I've been reading Patriarchs and Prophets in my, in my uh, devotions. And this is from a chapter on, on Gideon. And it just jumped out at me. And I thought, I've got to share this. I've got to share this. Page 558. It talks about the great day of final judgment. And that day is coming, isn't it? The great day of final judgment is coming when the rejectors of God's mercy. So God is full of mercy. But those who reject that and the despisers of his grace, those who don't want his grace and those who reject his mercy, it says they shall eventually be brought face to face with his justice. See that? So, if we reject grace, if we reject mercy, then what's left? Justice, that's right. And on the day of judgment, every single violation is going to be dealt with. And all the sins of Babylon are going to be dealt with. And 
these sins must, by the grace and the mercy of God, be taken out of us in the revival that God wants to happen among his people so then we can give the message clearly with a clean conscience, with a loving heart, without any sense of superiority over everyone. We've got to have that spirit of self-exaltation gone. The foulness must be gone. The uncleanness must be gone. All of the pride and the evil, it all has to be gone in order for us to give God's holy message, the loud cry in the final days of earth's history. We cannot afford to have any skeletons in our closets. One thing that has really impressed me as I've been just watching the whole drama that's unfolding in America between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, one of the things that has really impressed me is the verse that says, be sure your sins will find you out. Right? I mean, you know, Trump has a past too. And so does Hillary. They both have past. And when you're running for president, mercy, uh, the, the media is just, you know, they're, they're leaving no stone unturned. They're looking at everything they can dig up. And they're blasting these people's lives in front of the world. Scary thought, isn't it? And, you know, we may not have uh, deleted 30,000 emails or we may not have said some things that we shouldn't have said uh, about women that, you know, happened in the past on Trump's side, but we all have a past, don't we? We all have a past. Everybody's got a past. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when the investigation takes place, when the heavenly judgment sits, and the Lord looks at my life and looks at your life and looks at Trump's life and Hillary Clinton's life and every life, we have to make sure that we are people that are under his mercy and have received and loved and appreciated his grace. And if we haven't done that, then the only thing left is justice. We will face justice without a mediator. Do we need revival? We all need revival. I need revival. You need revival. We all need revival. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Take a look at this text. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Fifty-seven, fifteen says, For thus says the high and the lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and the holy place, says the Lord. With him and with him I also dwell who has a high and a lifted up spirit? No. With him who has a contrite 
and the humble spirit. To, and what's that next word? To revive. Right, revive. Doesn't that sound like revival to you? To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Those who are going to participate in the final revival among the people of the Lord, they are going to be people who humble themselves before God. Uh, Ellen White said somewhere, there must be a great humbling of heart on the part of all who will be found faithful. We need this. We need the humbling that the Lord wants to accomplish. Chapter 66, verse uh, 1 and 2. Isaiah 66, turn a couple pages. Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? And where is the place of my rest? For all these things my my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor, And we'll talk about that tomorrow. Jesus said, you know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. But who does the Lord dwell with? He dwells with those who are poor. He dwells with those who know their need. Him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Wow. These are the people that God is going to revive. These are the people who are going to be ready to give the loud cry. They are humble people. They are contrite people. They are repentant people. They are people that highly respect and tremble before the word of God. When God speaks, we listen very, very carefully because we want to do and respond to the word of the king. Revelation chapter 2, verse 23 is another text that has impressed me deeply. When you look at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are very powerful. We have a song in our family where we, I've taught my children a Ten Commandments song. We once we sang it in church, and the kids went down through all Ten Commandments. They've actually memorized word for word, commandment number one, commandment number two, all, all ten of them. I want my children to know the law of God. So does my wife. God's law is a holy law. Commandment number one says, no other gods before me. He is to be first in our lives. Number two, no idols at all. Number three, don't take the name of the Lord God in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Number five, honor, respect your father and your mother. Number six, don't murder, which even has to do with hatred. Number seven, don't commit adultery, which Jesus said even uh, even applies to the thoughts of our minds. 
right? Jesus said, if you, if you lust, if a man lusts after a woman, and I imagine it applies to a woman too, lusting after a man, or a woman lusting after a woman, or a man after a man, Jesus says, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So the law of God goes deep into the heart. Number eight is not to steal. Number nine is not to lie, bear false witness. Number 10 is not to covet. And it says in Patriarchs and Prophets that covetousness strikes at the very root of all sin, which is the selfish desire. Ow! And Jesus summarized the principles of God's law in love, unselfish love, love for God, for our Creator, who gave us life, who gave everything for us on the cross, and to love your neighbor as yourself. One time Jesus was asked uh, about that. Who, who is my neighbor? Let me ask you, is Hillary Clinton your neighbor? How about Donald Trump? God's law goes deep. It's not just on the surface. It deals with our words, taking God's name in vain. It deals with our parents, honoring mom and dad. It deals with our spouses, being faithful to husbands and wives. It deals with our things, that we shouldn't have idols. It deals with our time, which is the seven-day Sabbath. It deals with property. It has to do with stealing. It deals with our words, things that we say about others, our lips, lying. And it deals with our motivations. It deals with what's happening inside of our hearts. Inside the hearts. Now, here we go to this text in uh, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, verse 23, Jesus says, I will kill her children with death. Talking about uh, the corruptions that are going on with the woman Jezebel. And then it says, and all the churches, Jesus said, this is the words of Jesus Christ, all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Wow, isn't that a penetrating text? Jesus knows what's going on in my mind and in my heart. I'll tell you a little story. It happened today. I've never used this illustration before. Because I speak a lot, I, I look for new illustrations because sometimes you know, I have a tendency to use the same ones that I like, the good ones, again and again. And when they get on TV or they get on Audioverse and they get in my books, and I had one, one person say to me once, he said, Steve, you need to change some of your illustrations. Too many of the same illustrations. So I was thinking that Earlier today, before my talk at 11 o'clock on Fireball from the Sky, I was thinking, Lord, when I get to the end of that sermon, I need a new illustration, something I've never shared before or, or haven't shared in a long time. And uh, the thought came to me, talk about that sleeping guy at the airport. <laughs> Remember that? When I told you about that today. So I thought about that, and I thought, good, I'll, that's what I'll do. Now, then when I got to church... And I sat down, I don't know if it was down there or over here, and I was browsing through my notes. I realized I had not written down sleeping person at the airport. And, uh, and when I looked at my notes and there was no illustration at the end, I thought, Lord, what was that illustration? 
and I forgot it. I'm 57. Give me a break. My brain doesn't work so well sometimes. <laughs> and so I was, uh, I might have been sitting right there, getting ready to come up. And, and I didn't say it out loud, but I just thought it in my mind. I thought, Lord, what was that illustration that I thought about just an hour ago or so that I want to put into the back to the end of this sermon? And I tell you, an amazing thing happened. It was amazing. It was like after I prayed that silent prayer that I didn't pray out loud, it was like, and my mind was blank. I said, Lord, help me to remember it. I'm blank. And it was like a door opened in the back of my mind and the little voice said, the sleeping person at the airport. And I was just jolted. And I know inside of me that, that I did not just remember that. I believe that God, that Jesus, who searches hearts and minds, he knew I needed that illustration and he put it in there right when I needed it. It was like a blank slate and all of a sudden the Lord said, this is it. That's the illustration. And I thought, wow. And after uh, church, I took a walk, and I, I thought, Lord, and I prayed up in the mountain. I took a walk up into the hills, and I knelt down on a rock, and I just said, Lord, thank you for giving me that, that memory of that sermon illustration. Jesus knows everything about us. He knows our thoughts. He knows our, our hearts. He knows our minds. He knows everything and he is searching our hearts. He's searching our minds to see if there is any wicked way in us. And like David prayed, Lord, search me. If there's any wicked way, he said, uh, lead me in the way everlasting. God is doing a cleansing work in the hearts of his people. When he says that uh, he remembers the sins of Babylon, he remembers all of our sins. The last time I was here in Eden Valley, I shared with you some of the real struggles that I had not long after I became a Christian. I don't know if you remember that, but uh, when I became a Christian 37 years ago, things went fine for a while, but then I began to have some real struggles, some real struggles, and the Lord used my struggles to teach me lessons I could never have learned any other way. And even today, 30 years later, Maybe I won't say today, but at least recently. Uh, 30 years later, the Lord still takes my mind back to certain scenes in my life so I can see them crystal clear maybe 30 years ago to teach me a lesson that I maybe haven't quite learned yet. God is amazing. God is powerful. God knows everything there's nothing that escapes his notice and every violation of his law he's aware of. And we are in a time where the Holy Spirit is going deep, deeper and deeper and deeper. And he's doing it because he loves us and he wants, he wants to cleanse us. Now, let me share a few more thoughts with you. I don't have a whole lot more to share, but some, some more, a little bit more. The Judgment's Revival Connection. 
That's what we're talking about. Revival is connected to judgment. It's connected to the awareness of God as a judge. It's connected to our awareness of his law and our awareness of sin and our awareness of the grace, the costly grace that Jesus is offering us through what he did for us on the cross. Now, I have discovered something in my reading of Patriarchs and Prophets and reading the Old Testament recently. I've discovered something, and that is that the judgments of God in the Bible, like in the days of Noah and in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, the judgments of God in the Bible do not only fall upon the world at large, like the people before the flood or the wicked inhabitants of Sodom. I've, I've been uh, increasingly impressed by reading the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers on how God's judgments have also fallen upon his own professed people when they have rebelled with a high hand. And let me just give you four quick examples. Exodus 32 talks about the golden calf. Who built the golden calf? Okay, yeah, Aaron uh, yielded to the clamors of the mob the mixed multitude and many of the Israelites that were part of that. And right at the base of Mount Sinai, the people that God had given his law to were the people that built the golden calf. And 3,000 of them died. 3,000 died. Numbers chapter 16 talks about the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And they rebelled against God's authority through Moses, through his appointed leader, his leaders. They were in rebellion against authority. And what happened to them? The earth opened up and swallowed them. That's what happened. And these were leaders among the people of God. Numbers chapter 25 talks about sexual sin right on the edge of the promised land. At Baal Peor, Moses was planning for the campaign and the Moabite women began to sneak into the camp. Remember that? At the uh, suggestion of Balaam, the prophet who had gone bad. And before that was all over, I think, it was, I think the scripture says 20, either 23 or 24,000 of the Israelites were dead. God's judgments fell upon his own people on the edge of the promised land because of their sexual, sexual sin. And then there's the sin of Moses, Numbers chapter 20. Wow, I've really been reading about that. It's amazing. Moses was such a faithful man, such a godly man. He did so much. The Lord used him so mightily, but he committed one sin and it kept him out of the promised land. And what was that sin? That's right. Uh, he was supposed to, the first time he struck the rock and the water came out, the second time God told him to speak to the rock. Because the rock, Jesus Christ, only means his only, he only died once. He was only struck once. And the rock was a symbol and the water coming out was a symbol of Christ. And Moses, as the representative before God, was supposed to just speak to the rock. But he lost, he lost his cool. He lost his temper. And he, uh, he became impatient. And he said, listen now, you rebels. He said, must, 
must we fetch water for you out of this rock? And then he struck it twice. And the Lord told him that that he did not sanctify God in the eyes of the people. That Moses' sin was he did not, he didn't obey instructions and he didn't honor God and self-exaltation wove itself into what he did. And because of that one sin, God would not let him go into the earthly promised land. Because if he excused sin in Moses, how can he do that? How can he be a just, impartial, fair God if he punishes other people but lets his leader off the hook? See what I mean? So to teach humanity in all generations that God has zero tolerance for sin, that he will not overlook it in any of his, even his own people, his own leaders, he denied Moses the right to go into the promised land. But lest we, uh, lest we murmur and complain, the Lord knew in the back of his mind, I'm going to uphold my justice. I'm not going to let Moses in. But when he dies, and when nobody knows where his grave is, I'm going to come down, resurrect him, and take him into a better promised land. What do you think about that? So... Uh, he took him to heaven, that's right. You read that in the book of Jude. So God showed his justice and his impartiality and also his incredible love and mercy. And he still honored his servant Moses by resurrecting him and bringing him in to the promised land. God is just. God is fair. God is no respecter of persons. The principles of his law are eternal. He has no tolerance for sin whatsoever. Every sin will eventually be punished. And that applies not only to people outside, but it applies within the church. It applies to me. It applies to you. It applies to all of us if we're fooling around with the Lord and if we're committing sins that nobody, that nobody knows about. I've got two more slides, and I want to share this with you. This is amazing. Back to the book, The Great Controversy. I've recently really uh, focused on the last chapter of the book, Great Controversy, which is called The Controversy Ended, which talks about the great final judgment at the end of the world. And if you have your Bible, notice in your Bible, Revelation 20, Turn to Revelation 20. We just read chapter 2, verse 23. Revelation 20 describes the end of the millennium. Verse 11. Actually, that's a, that's a misquote here. That should be verse 11, not verse 12. I'll have to correct that. Revelation 20, verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven had fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written 
in the books. Everything that they've done has been written down. Nothing has escaped. Everything that we've ever done, the Lord is totally aware of it. And they're in the books. Now listen to this. This is from the last chapter of the book of Great Controversy. It says, as the books of record are opened and the eye of Jesus looks upon the wicked, they are conscious of every sin which they have ever committed. He doesn't even need to say anything. He just looks at them with eyes of fire and memory becomes active and they remember in their minds They remember every single thing they've ever done. Isn't that amazing? Now listen to this. They see just where their feet have diverged from the path of purity and holiness. Just how far pride and rebellion have carried them in the violation of the law of God. The seductive temptations which they encouraged by indulgence in sin, the blessings perverted, the messengers of God despised, the warnings rejected, the waves of mercy beaten back by stubborn, unrepentant hearts, all appear as if written in letters of fire. That's what's going to happen to the world at the end of the thousand years. And then, she says, as they see all this, above the throne is revealed the cross. And like a panoramic view appear the scenes of Adam's temptation and fall and the successive steps in the great plan of redemption. The Savior's lowly birth, his early life of simplicity and obedience, his baptism in Jordan, his fast and temptation in the wilderness, his public ministry, unfolding to men heaven's most precious blessings, the days crowded with deeds of love and mercy, the nights of prayer and watching in the solitude of the mountains, the plottings of envy, hate, malice, which repaid his benefits, the awful, mysterious agony in Gethsemane, beneath the crushing weight of the sins of the whole world, his betrayal into the hands of the murderous mob, the fearful events of that night of horror, the unresisting prisoner, forsaken by his best beloved disciples, rudely hurried through the streets of Jerusalem, the Son of God exultingly displayed before Annas, arrayed in the high priest's palace, in the judgment hall of Pilate, before the cowardly and cruel Herod, mocked, insulted, tortured, and condemned to die. All of this is vividly portrayed. They're going to see it crystal clear at the end of the millennium. And now before the swaying multitude are revealed the final scenes. The patient sufferer treading the path to Calvary. The prince of heaven hanging upon the cross. The haughty priests and jeering rabble deriding his expiring agony. The supernatural darkness, the heaving earth, the rent rocks, the open graves. Marking the moment when the world's redeemer yielded up his life. One more paragraph. The awful spectacle appears just as it was. Satan 
his angels and his subjects have no power to turn from the picture of their own work. Each actor recalls the part which he has performed. Herod, who slew the innocent children of Bethlehem, that he might destroy the king of Israel, the base Herodias, upon whose guilty soul rests the blood of John the Baptist, the weak, time-serving Pilate, the mocking soldiers, the priests, the rulers, and the maddened throng who cried out, His blood be upon us and upon our children. All behold the enormity of their guilt. They vainly seek to hide from the divine majesty of his countenance, outshining the glory of the sun. Jesus is brighter than the sun. While the redeemed cast their crowns at the Savior's feet and exclaim, He died for me. Wow. That's what's going to happen at the end of the thousand years. And God wants us to see that scene now. He wants us to realize the holiness of his law now. He wants us to realize he has no tolerance for sin at all, and he's doing that for the well-being of the universe. It's because sin is evil and it's got to go. And he wants us to see now his incredible mercy and grace and love and forgiveness and compassion that he's offering to you and to me so that all of our sins will be completely washed away. So we don't have to worry about those sins. We don't have to worry that we're ever going to have to suffer for them. We won't. We don't. Because Jesus paid the price. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that good news? God is wanting, he is calling his people to revival. He's, he's, uh, he's wanting to purify our hearts. He's offering us full forgiveness, full grace, no matter what you've done no matter how bad you've been, no matter what your past is, no matter what skeletons you have in your closet that nobody knows about but you, God says, I love you anyway. I love you anyway. And I gave it all. I paid the price for you. And I tell you, you know, I don't know what more the Lord can show us to bring us to revival. And now's the time to do it. Now's the time to be revived. So why don't we close with prayer and let's pray that the Holy Spirit will move in our hearts, in our souls. And I, you know, it's me too. I'm with you. We're all in this together. And when we go out and give the message to Babylon, we've got to be a clean people. We've got to be a revived people to give God's message. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord Jesus, and Heavenly Father, Father, we pray to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. I know the Holy Spirit is here. 
Lord, I know that earlier today when I could not remember that illustration, it was so clear to me that you just popped it into my head. Lord, you know what's in our heads. You know what's in our hearts. And, and you want to cleanse us. We don't have to get good enough to go to heaven. We, we, we can't earn our way into the kingdom. We need to humble ourselves and surrender. Surrender our lives to you, to your authority, and to the sovereignty and the blessings of your love and of your grace. Lord, forgive us for our sins. Forgive me. You know my sins. And you know all of our sins. Lord, forgive us for the sins that we've committed. Give us the Holy Spirit, we pray. Revive us. Revive us. You've said you will revive the spirit of the humble and the contrite in heart. Lord, revive us. And give us your, your power to live lives that are different from the rest of the world, different from Babylon. Help us not to share in her sins. Lord, please, thank you for this weekend. Thank you that you brought me here. Thank you that you've given me strength to give these talks. And we just pray that uh, you'll cleanse us all and that we will know that you are our Savior that you are our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, there's one text I forgot to read. While you, while you sit up quietly, I'm just going to close with this text. I've got it here on my notes, but I forgot. I, uh, Psalm 85, verse 6 and 7. Let's just close with this. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. We hope you enjoyed today's broadcast with Steve Wolberg. We feel privileged to be a part of God's commission to share the gospel message with the world. You too can be a part of our gospel outreach team by supporting broadcasts just like these with your financial gifts. We strive to be careful with every dollar that we receive, knowing these donations are sacred gifts to build up God's kingdom of grace and salvation. To find other great resources or to donate online, go to whitehorsemedia.com or you can call us at 1-800-78-BIBLE. That's one 800 782 4253. You can follow us on Twitter at Whitehorse7 or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Steve Wolberg. That's Steve W O H L B E R G. If you prefer to contact us by mail, write to Whitehorse Media, P.O. Box 130, Priest River, Idaho 83856. Thanks for your support and may God richly bless your day.